Welcome to episode 59 of the Muck Podcast, where we discuss the dark and sometimes weird true stories in American politics. I'm Tina Hadamio. And I'm Hillary Dougherty. Hillary. Hi. Hi. Um, so I have so much to tell you. Oh my gosh. Um, first of all, I've been on a roller coaster this week, girl, because I, for God knows what reason, like dug into this, um, cr- is it a crate? What do you call it? Like a chest yeah. of my old stuff that's <gasps> in my, my closet. And I found um, love letters oh. from my high school sweetheart. <gasps> we were together for seven years. Wow. Isn't that crazy? From high school? From high school. So like sophomore year, like into after high school. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, see, I never really dated in high school. Oh it my was God. like one of those like, oh, you're with someone for a week and then no. that's it. And no, no, no. Together. Wow. (laughs) I know. That and seven years high school time. So you guys basically were it's like two decades. Yeah, I would say it's two decades. (laughs) (laughs) He was such a great guy and I was reading these letters and it's just it immediately like takes you back to that time. And, you know, I don't think very highly of myself anyway. Don't say anything. (laughs) I know you're, I see the look on your face. That's fine. But like to read these letters, I'm like, wow, this guy really loved me. And I was like, we're two 17 year old idiots. You know what I mean? But it really took me back so far that I had to call him (gasps) and be, because I haven't talked to him in like probably 10 years and say like, what's up? Oh my God. And so I left this message. I was like, I think this is your phone. I have no idea. And when he called back and he, <laughs> I said, look at this guy, look at this guy. And we talked for like 45 minutes and laughed the entire oh, time. It was like the nice. best conversation. And that's I was so nice glad. Connect. Yes, it was so awesome. So that was fun. I have to tell you something else. And I'm so nervous to tell you because uh-uh. I feel like you're, you might be upset with me. <laughs> you're going to get mad at me. What? But it's not my fault. So last night... <laughs> I was working on my story because we're recording two episodes today. Okay. And so I was working on my second story. It was 1130 at night. Yes. And I was totally procrastinating all day and like being an asshole because I wasn't that jazzed about the story. But anyway, um, my phone buzzes and I, of course, looked at it because I want something to distract me from what I'm doing. And it was Barefoot Lobo. Yes. Okay. And he sends me a message and I'm going to read it to you just in like full disclosure. <laughs> he says, are you up? And could you get up to a computer? I know it's last second and it's not a big deal if you can't. We just had some questions. Also, it would be on camera. Fine. So like be on yes. Hell is Full of Dads, yes. which is that amazing podcast. So I was like, fucking it. Like I red lipstick, baby. Like put that <laughs> shit on quick. <laughs> right. <laughs> and my daughter wasn't here. So I was in her room anyway. And so they sent me this link. I and love I it. get on <gasps> and I'm looking at Cody and Barefoot Lobo. Yes. And they're beautiful, handsome faces. <laughs> and I was like, this is insane. And then, of course, Barefoot Lobo was like, you know, yes. staring. <laughs> and Cody goes, he's fanboying out. I was like, no! <laughs> like, so cute. Anyway, three hours later, <gasps> three hours later. A three-hour podcast? Dude, they record. I mean, listen, I'm telling, I'm spilling tea, guys. They record for like six or seven oh, hours. Oh, and then they, they cut. And then they cut it all up. Oh, that's great. So I was on that podcast. I didn't realize it was going to be this whole thing, but it went by really fast. I love this. Okay. So, but in the middle of it, I go, you know, 
Tina really should be on this right now. I said, yes, hello. Sh- I said, we really thanks, should. Thanks for leaving me out, Barefoot Lobo. <laughs> I told Thank him. Thank you. I'm totally blaming Thank you. you. And you're going to have to fix this. Yeah. P.S. I, P.S. I was up. <laughs> oh, Thank shit. you. Oh, my God. Thanks, guys. Oh, my God. How well, dare you? Yeah. That's what I said. I was like, you better start. <laughs> so this morning... He sent me a message saying, thanks for coming on. And I was like, P.S. Tina's going to be here soon. I got to break this shit to her. So you better send her an invitation right now. Like you need to get her on the podcast this weekend. Hello. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So thank you. anyway, it was a total <laughs> love fest that, that, that of course, Barefoot Lobo is our number one fan. Yes. And how much we love their podcast yes. and making plans to do crossover episodes and have fun. And it was just, it was whatever. It was good. I feel like I... I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel as a mother, but I think a lot of times I feel like I don't know what I'm doing ever. Yeah, no. Okay, so I feel like we it's a common yes. thing. And so it annoys me, like, when I see mothers. We went ice skating last night, and I just there's mothers that just seem to, they look like they have it all together. But in my mind, I'm like, that bitch don't know what the fuck they yes. Right? Okay, because, <laughs> I, and that's hard. So when you go on a podcast where you're talking about parenting, it's like, yeah, here's all my failures. Here's yeah. the things that I've done wrong. Here's the things that I've seen. Anyway, we get to talk about that on the podcast, so uh, I don't know. Oh, I can't wait to listen. Well, I can't wait to listen when you go on the podcast, because that I will know. be happening I, soon. I can't. I'm very disappointed, I still have to say. <laughs> I know. The disappointment. Oh God, and P.S., you don't want to disappoint Italian. <laughs> because it doesn't go away. It lasts a long time. Woo! You can make up, and I'll go, it's fine. But I won't. I won't forget. <laughs> I won't. Just remember. Don't take I won't a forget. casserole. Don't take a dish from <laughs> Tina because it will be poisoned. Oh, my God. Um, anyway, I you're, you were there in spirit. We talked about oh, you. And I was yay. just like, it really would have been nice if Tina was on here. I feel like shit. And also, the invitation's so vague that I was like, oh, they're just testing the equipment. I didn't realize we're going to be in there for three hours talking about bullshit. I love um, it. Okay. So I also wanted to bring up that this Friday – is the pod, the Lil Muck episode that we have been so oh, excited about. Yes. And I think that we should say who it is. Yes. Why not? Do you want to announce it? Or do you want me to do it? You do it. You do <laughs> okay. it. You do it. I'm just so, too, I'm too, too nervous about it. <laughs> so this Friday, um, February 12th, we interview Helen Butler, Woo! who is <laughs> yeah, the executive director for the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda. Yes. So on that list of incredible black women who yes. saved this country. She is there. Um, she was one of these amazing <laughs> yes. women, and they do incredible work for voter education, voter education yeah. and uh, voting rights in Georgia. And she's just an amazing, incredible woman. And uh, I mean... I mean, I was in awe at the entire yes, time. She's yes. just absolutely incredible. It's going to be such a great episode. You guys have to listen. Yes. So that <gasps> is great. So listen on Friday for Helen Butler. And I mean, we've been having incredible downloads in the last week. Yes. And so I want to say hello to all the new listeners yes. who have been listening and found their way to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Keep listening. Tell your friends. Yes. So that's all I had right now. Okay. Well, let's go. Okay. So I am first this week. <gasps> yes. I am going to cover former mayor of New Orleans, Ray Nagin. Oh. Okay. So you know New Orleans is my hometown, bitch. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and it is a hometown with cor- political corruption up the wazoo, yes. right? all the time, everywhere, every 
Nook and cranny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's get into it. Ray Nagin was born on June 11th, 1956 in New Orleans, and his family had, mod- it was modest means, right? So his father held two jobs. He was a janitor at New Orleans City Hall by night and a fabric cutter at a clothing factory by day. After the factory shut down, his father became a fleet mechanic at a local dairy. Um, and then uh, his mother worked as a manager of a Kmart in-store restaurant at a Kmart. Okay. So the family lived on Allen Street in the Seventh Ward, followed by a stay in St. Peter Clavel Catholic Church in the Treme, Treme neighborhood. I don't, do you know what Treme, that neighborhood yes. is? Okay, I love it so much. Okay. So um, he went to St. Augustine High School and O'Perry Walker High School, where he played basketball and baseball. He enrolled at historically black college Tuskegee University in Tuskegee, Alabama on a baseball scholarship. And he played um, on championship teams and graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in accounting in 1978. And then he becomes a certified public accountant, right? A CPA. And after graduating from college, he went on to work at a purchasing department at General Motors in Detroit, Michigan. Um, He moved to Dallas, Texas in 1981 and to take an internal audit manager and division controller jobs for the Associates Corporation, which is basically um, an accounting yeah, giant accounting sounds, firm. It sounds boring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no offense. No offense. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Numbers in, in me don't match. So. <laughs> in 1982, Nagin married Salitha Smith, a New Orleans native, and together they had three children. So in 1985, he returns to New Orleans, you know, his home, to become the controller of Cox New Orleans, which is the city's cable television franchise. Um, and it's run by... A Cox Media, a Cox Media conglomerate, conglomerate. Yeah, I'm very uncomfortable saying Cox all the time right now. But <laughs> let's just forget that. The franchise had a history of customer complaints, low profits, and stagnant growth, and was one of the poorest performing components within Cox. Nagin was quickly promoted to general manager, and in 1989, he was appointed to oversee all of Cox's properties in South Louisiana as vice president and general manager of Cox Louisiana, earning four hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, in 1989. Wow. That's a good amount of money. In 1993, Nagin enrolled in in the executive MBA program at Tulane University. And um, then he started lobbying like local, state, and federal governments to, for, um, that they manage the regulations and, you know, so in the franchise renewal. So he was getting involved in like politics a little bit there. Um, His public profile was high because he hosted a twice weekly television call in show for customers. Oh, could you imagine for a cable network, like a cable? And then you, they and were like, they call hey, hey, I'm, I'm, ups, I'm, I'm disgruntled. And they just modem's walk not through. working. Like what the, yeah, what the fuck is that? That's not that weird. Yeah. That sounds equally boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's but watching also, that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's funny in 1995 Nagin received the young leadership council diversity and role model award and later sat on the boards of the united way and covenant house oh. so he's making his way as like a person in the city yeah yeah but he those also, are good organizations yeah yeah he was also one of the founders and president of one president of 100 black men of metro new orleans an affiliate of the national organization of black businessmen Nagin was a partner in a group that brought the New Orleans Brass, which is the hockey team, to yeah. the city, which oh, is a big deal. That he brings be- in a lot of money. Yeah. And so he became the team's president and investor spokesman as they secured the hockey franchise. Um, the initial popularity of the team allowed the group to secure the 18,000-seat New Orleans Arena as its home venue. That year, the local alternative paper, the Gambit Weekly, named Nagin as its New Orleans of the Year. Wow. Way to go. Yeah. 
So several news sources, including BBC News, have stated that Nagin was a registered Republican for most of his adult life and a George W. Bush supporter, but then switched to the Democratic Party shortly prior to seeking office in mm. New Orleans. He, in 2004, he endorsed John Kerry for president. In January 13th, 2016, interview on the Tavis Smiley Show. Have you ever watched Tavis Smiley? I, I yes, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. familiar with that. Um, Nagin denied th- that he was a Republican, stating that he was never Republican and that he has been a lifelong Democrat. And several news organizations that reported that reported this originally um, were forced to issue retractions. Oh, so then it yeah, so maybe so, yeah, I mean they can go back and check those records easily. Yeah. yeah. However, he periodically gave contributions to candidates of both parties, including Representative Billy Tazoon or Tazine. In 1999 and 2000, as well as Democrat Senators John Bro and Jay Bennett Johnson. I don't think that's that yeah. big of a deal, right? Yeah. Okay. I feel like, you know, I mean, yeah. This is also in a time where it wasn't such a right. Like, You're right. Such a divide. Yes, yes, yes. And he endorsed conservative Republican Bobby Jindal over conservative oh. Democrat Lieutenant Governor Kathleen Blanco. But remember, do you, do you remember when he when he uh, gave that response yes. to the to the the convention speech? Yeah, was so it? it was the speech that he gave. Oh, God, I'm Bobby. <laughs> I don't he know. Was a it's mess. so funny. It wasn't as bad as Marco Rubio's with the water. Oh, God. Why are we here with this I guy? I, I don't can't know. fucking take it. I can't either. So in 2002, he decides to run for mayor of New Orleans, right? And he entered the race on the final day of qualifying, which is not my favorite thing that people do. I do not like this. You don't, I know I it's know, okay. I know you don't like the last minute. Honey, I don't like that people are running a campaign for a year at least, and then on the last day somebody jumps in and fucks this whole yes. thing up. Although, whatever, no, it's I mean, the way you it can is, do it. Unless fine. it's, because then sometimes it seems like there's these deliberate ploys to like tank someone else's campaign. Yes. It's not really about even that person winning. It's just all of these scheming. But the amount of work that goes into these yes. campaigns, running, raising money, yeah. shaking hands, talking to people, getting involved, it's incredible. And then all of a sudden this guy jumps in on the last day yeah. come on man <laughs> get real <laughs> so shortly before the prime i know it's so stupid i take it too personally yes. Tina. i'm personally offended by this yes <laughs> shortly before the primary mayoral election on january 17 2002 the new orleans times picayune and gambit weekly endorsed nagan in the first round of the mayoral election in february 2002 nagan won first place with 29 percent of the vote some of his opponents were the police chief Richard Pennington, state senator Paulette Irons, Paulette Irons, and city councilman Troy Carter. Mm. So, so this like is like one of those, the, yeah, yeah. But this is one of those cities where it's like a huge deal to be mayor. Yes, yes. you know, because there's other across, you know, absolutely. Yeah, Let's so you're like some little town. It's like okay, you're New the York, mayor, Chicago. Yes, yes. This is, it's like you're running. And yes, it, you have power in the state that more than the governor sometimes. Yes. So um, in the runoff, Nagin in 2002, Nagin defeated Richard Pennington with 59% of the vote, and he become or vote, and he becomes the 60th mayor of New Orleans. Yay! Uh oh, uh oh. So in his first term, um, the compre- the 2004 Comprehensive Annual Financial Report of the City of New Orleans, as certified by c- CPA firm KPMG, it highlighted major or many significant accomplishments of the Nagin administration. They had gained 4,500 jobs that year, and the U.S. Uh, Census Bureau figures showed about 38,000 New Orleans had risen out of poverty above Ooh. the national average, which is amazing, Great. right? Yeah. Um, the American City Business Journal Per cap said per capita income in New Orleans was rising at the fastest rate in the nation. Um, Southern Business and Development named. Now, let me say something though, because it's not necessarily he's in office as is happening. Right. This could have been years of things, of things happening being, from previous administrations, right. but he gets the credit because he's that happens, wearing the it crown. Happens all the right? time. Yeah. yeah. 
So Southern Business and Development named New Orleans number eight on the list of comeback kids in the South. New Orleans had back-to-back record tourist years. 10.1 million people in 2004 visited um, New Orleans. Uh, Yahoo National Geographic Traveler Poll named the city its number one family destination. And the area had seen uh, $400 million of film productions, which is incredible. According to Movie Maker Magazine, New Orleans was the fourth best place to film a movie and had earned the title Hollywood South. Awesome. Yeah. So in November 2004, the Nagin administration passed the city's largest bond issue, which was a $260 million bond. Um, As Hurricane Ivan threatened the Gulf Gulf of Mexico in September 2004, Nagin urged New Orleans to be ready for the storm. He advised evacuees to have some Benjamins (laughs) handy and urged those planning to stay not only to stock up on food and water, but to also make sure they had, quote, an axe in the attic. So, okay. yeah, so we all can, know what this is yes, referenced yes, to. Yes, yes, yes. Um, because this, storms like this have hit New Orleans before, but this is pre-Katrina, right? Yeah. So Nagin issued a voluntary evacuation call at 6 p.m. on September 30th, and the interstates quickly filled up, up as some 600,000 metro New, or- New Orleans left. Wow. Traffic was so heavy that some trips took 12 hours or more, and then the hurricane missed the city. So. Uh-huh. But, you know, we know what that's like. That's we, so here. We, this we is, know, yeah. you know, my very 95 next, is yes. packed. My very no, next you know, line says, talk about what it's like to be in a hurricane in Florida. Yeah. Like, let's, for the people who are listening in Latvia right now. Yeah. Because we have <laughs> listeners in Latvia and Nigeria. Yes. Let's talk about what the hell it's like to be in a hurricane. You don't um, want to get on 95. You don't. And so it's like, well, do I take the risk or do I sit in like on 95 and yeah. not have gas and yes. you can't get out anyway and it's a it's cluster. Unless well, you leave super, super, super at the very start. Yeah. Otherwise, forget about it. And also, you might as well stay. so New Orleans is on the Gulf, which is the, the, so it's the furthest south you yes. can get in the state, which means you've got to go north. There's one way out or you could go. Maybe you could go east or west, I guess. But Florida, you got to go yes, up. That's gotta the get only the hell way out of here. Right. Yeah. And so that's why it's slow. But the thing about hurricanes is you have time to prepare. It's yes. not a tornado where it's like you hear the sound oh, no, and, you run days, your life. and you're looking at the cone. Yes. Oh, that cone. But you, <laughs> the nobody cone understands how horrible. Yeah. When I see that cone, I, I'm like, I can't stand it. Yeah. I hate that stupid cone. Well, there's because it's like there's like and then there's five million there's tracks options. and you're like, just no. tell me. No, I, I, I know I can't stand it. But that's what it's like. Yeah. So to be so I remember we were it was maybe it was 2007 or eight. We had like three storms in a row. I remember one of my cousins. Maybe it was Melanie or Shannon in, in Nevada. And they were like, it was the middle of the hurricane and it was completely covering the state of Florida. Yeah. That's all people could see is yeah. this entire thing. And I remember getting a text or an email. It was like, are you okay? <laughs> I was like, girl, I'm in my house. Like yeah. looking at the rain. Like, I don't know. It's really, as long as you're prepared and you hope to God, pray to yes, God that, the, that it's like, not, the, you don't cat, lose electricity. Yeah. That it's not like a cat five or yes, something. Then you're, it's basically, you're riding it out. Yeah. I feel like cat one to three, we've talked about this before. You're you know, you're, you're pretty okay. Yes. When it's four and five is when yes. I get nervous because you, yes. it's like the, you get the alarms for like all the tornadoes that are mm-hmm. like in your area mm-hmm. and that part freaks me out. And the other thing too, is that when you live in a place where hurricanes happen, you, it's not that you're dismissive of them. You're just like, okay, well, we're going to get ready. And everyone else around in other areas are like, oh my God. So that's how new Orleans are. Yeah. You they're know, like, they're okay, like, well, it's another coming. fucking hurricane, yeah. you know, and they get hit, they get hit all the time. All the time. And so it's not like Sometimes they like would. Sometimes like twice because it. Yes, it circles back yeah. around. Oh my God. So anyway, in August 2005, Hurricane Katrina yes. entered the Gulf of Mexico. 
it had already come through Florida. We had it first. Um, I mean, and a then devastation. It, it was terrible. But it, it came across the state of Florida and entered the Gulf Coast on the west side. And what happens and why it's very dangerous to live on the Gulf Coast over there is because that water is very warm. And when a hurricane sits over that, if it's a slow-moving hurricane, the warm yeah. water builds it and makes it bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And that storm was so slow that it got humongous and then it when just it sat, hit New Orleans. Yeah, and, then it, and it just and it it hits for incredible. hours. Yeah, and it was incredible. It was and so big. And the levees. And, oh, yeah, did so you ever let, see that when the levees broke? Oh, honey. I know. I can't. That's, so let, let me tell you. Okay. Let me talk. So let's talk about that. So uh, it entered the Gulf of Mexico, and early on Friday, August 26th, Mayor Nagan advised New Orleans to keep a close eye on the storm and prepare for evacuation. He then made several public statements encouraging people to leave and advising that if they did not evacuate, quote, we will take care of you. Uh, by 10 a.m. Saturday, a mandatory evacuation was called for low-lying areas in the surrounding parishes of St. Charles, St. Tammany, Plaque Mines, and Jefferson. Woo-hoo, that's where I was born, Jefferson Parish. And a voluntary evacuation for St. Bernard Parish. So Nagan had, however, ignored federal and state offers of help and a recommendation uh. to evacuate the city. In addition to the parish's announcements, President George W. Bush declared a federal state of emergency for Louisiana. Good. You're supposed to. That's yes. what you got to do. Yes. Um, and it, so funding they, can come quickly. Did, did they say why he refused the help, or did, did he just not think it was going to be it didn't as, say. as yeah. bad? He probably Maybe, didn't realize. I, I, I wanted to mention that Hurricane Ivan because, I mean, you have to take every storm seriously. Like, they're all going to hit, and that's why it's so. Right. It's always such but a, like, But it's so a, easy because how many times? I mean, yes, God, I'm not going to knock misses, on wood know, because, please, please, Girl. we're going to be heading into... Hurricane, hurricane season, season. Again. yes but but it's like okay this big storm's gonna come and then it and it's slight i mean all it needs yeah. is a slight tick yeah within and then, an hour you're like oh I'm and going then to it's work not, tomorrow. yeah and then you go back to work and everything's yeah. fine and but but the moment that something i mean we've experienced it with andrew yes and uh west palm mm. what was the one that happened in 2004 wilma wilma oh wilma yeah, yeah, wilma yeah, yeah as well yeah. so you know when it does hit it it can be devastating yeah. especially for like our trailer uh, park homes and like mm. other like uh, housing yes. that isn't as secure as other people. And that has a whole income issue as well. Yes. And it brings in all these other, which is what happened here with this storm, yeah. you know? So in accordance with the original evacuation plan, New Orleans, along with the surrounding areas of Jefferson and St. Char- Charles parishes were given formal voluntary evacuation orders around 50 hours from landfall. Mm. The phased approach along with what's called quote contra flow where all incoming interstate highways were are reversed and they go outward. So that ensures yeah, that yeah, additional yeah, yeah, vehicles yeah. moving onto already congested roads could not create a massive gridlock. So what that what happens is uh, you have north and southbound 95 here. Right. Everything's northbound. Yes. So you can't, there's nobody coming down to Florida. Yes. You just have to get out. Okay. And then who's coming down? Uh, you well, know, there's probably some, well, we're in Florida, so you know, there's yeah. got to be some idiot that's like, I don't understand why yeah. I can't go south. Disney's closed. <laughs> I can't go to Disney. The storm's going to hit in about an hour, sir. Please go hunker down. Yeah. Um, the local newspaper reported that Nagan stopped short of ordering a mandatory evacuation because of concerns about the city's liability for closing hotels and other businesses. <sighs> I'm not really sure. Like, I don't know. I mean, yeah. when you've got tourists there, like, what are they supposed to do? Kick them all out? Like, what the fuck happens? Yeah, but... I know. So after they should have a plan in place for right. if a storm happens, I mean, this is what we million, do with our guests. You have 10 million visitors in one year. Like there's those hotels are packed. Yeah. You know, but there should be something where they have some kind of system to yes, get, them, get out. them out. Yeah. Especially if you know a few days in advance. Right. 
So after receiving a late night call Saturday from Max Mayfield, we know we are very, we're BFF with Max Mayfield down here. He's the head of the National Hurricane Center and Nagan was advised that Katrina was headed to New Orleans. So he ordered the city attorney to prepare legal documents for a, a mandatory evacuation of the city. The first in New Orleans, almost 300 year history. Wow. Can you imagine? Wow. Yeah. So this that doesn't is make something, any sense. Yeah. yeah. Mandatory evacuation. Mm-hmm. That, that happens down here all the time. Yeah. But you don't, you know. Yeah. The cops come down. They're like, get yeah, out of yeah, your house. Yeah, with like, the- I got <laughs> I'm watching Netflix, honey. I'm making that. I'm making those spaghettios right now out of the can. <laughs> I'm trying to hunker down. So on Sunday, August 28th at 9.30 a.m., the mandatory evacuation order was signed and communicated to the public. The Superdome was opened as a shelter oh, of last God, resort. This was horrible. Oh, my God. And police went throughout the city with loudspeakers alerting all remaining citizens to go pick up to go to key pickup points for free bus rides. By Sunday evening, 80% of the of New, Orle- New Orleans were, and visitors were evacuated or relocated. Great. Okay. After the hurricane hit, the federally built and maintained levees collapsed throughout the city. So those areas, those parishes they talked about yeah. in the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, they are uh, predominantly black neighborhoods. They're the poorest areas in the na- in, in the city. Um, but the city is all really low-lying anyway, yeah. like below sea level. And so they have these levees, which are basically like mini dams, right. to keep the lake and the river, the Mississippi River's right there, right. to keep that water out. But, I mean, the, <sighs> right? the pressure of that water yeah. and ha- the, the way, I mean, you see it, we see it with the ocean. Yes. Where, where it is, it is so incredibly frightening yeah. to see how the, the level of the ocean change. Yes. And you realize like how powerful water is. Mm-hmm. It's frightening. So I can't imagine that that just bursting. Yeah, but then uh, you have like not it's, it's it's exactly what you're saying. It's all it's all, the amount of water we're talking about hours and hours and hours and hours of downfall of water and wind uh, pounding at the levees, which I didn't get into. But if I remember correctly, weren't in that great a shape. No. Okay. That was so, just, that was the problem. That was the problem. Yeah. So. It's an issue. And so when those levees burst, that water all came flooding. Because after the hurricane passed, people were walking outside of their homes. Yeah. They were, this, 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 this storm is gone. Next thing you know, there's 20 feet of water and they're standing in their roof, yeah. uh, you know, and, and asking for, for some help. You know what I mean? It was incredible. So 80% of the city was flooded. Some areas as high as 20 feet over the rooftops of homes. Oh my God. I mean, um, imagine you're in your, well, how do you, what do you do? How do you, it's awful. It's awful. incredible. And that's where the ax comes in. There were people actually in their attic getting, using the ax to get out and get to get on the roof. Um, so food or, food and water became scarce. Looting was common, which, you know, take it. I say loot. Yeah, Get well, people the food are hungry. and water people that you need. What the hell are they yeah. supposed to do? Um, after hearing reports on his wind-up radio, Nagan criticized the federal and state response on WWL radio and his passionate outburst went viral. So that's where this guy really starts to get into the national spotlight is after Hurricane Katrina, he was very much criticizing the slow response of the federal government and the state government. And it okay. reminds me of, um, I wrote this down in 2017 when Hurricane Maria went through, Maria went through Puerto Rico and oh my God. the San Juan mayor, uh, Carmen Cruz, uh, went viral after criticizing Trump. Like yes. we're dying here. Yes, we're dying. Us. We're a territory Ugh. of the United States. And then States. the paper towel. It's, yes. it's so Ugh. insulting. That was the beginning of that. It's of that so administration. insulting. <sighs> so at a town hall meeting in October, 2005, so shortly after the storm, uh, Nagan said, quote, that, uh, now, this might seem like a left turn, and it's fine. It's just I wanted to mention it because I thought it was like, what the fuck? Um, he said, quote, I can see in your eyes you want to know, quote, how do I take advantage of this incredible opportunity? How do I make sure New Orleans is not overrun with Mexican workers, end quote? What? 
So let me take a let me take a step back. Okay. When these when when storms like this happen, you got to rebuild. So one of the ways New Orleans is very very like a dirty city is because there's always contractors looking to make right a buck. Right. And so you get these these con government you know, construction contractors to they come make in bids and deals. Yeah. And- so they had this town hall, and the people of New Orleans were like, "We want to make sure that New Orleans workers are going to be the ones doing this work." Right. And he was like, "I can see you don't want Mexicans." And I was yeah. like, "Yeah, I mean, why what are does it have to be Mexicans? Yeah, yeah, it could just be we don't want any people from any yes. state outside of yeah. New Orleans to right. be doing this." Right. Right. And by the way. You can have government contracts where you say the employees are going to need to live in these yes. zip codes. Yeah, so of course. it's totally possible yes. to make sure that it's only people who live in New Orleans that are actually working right. on these jobs. But so it's unnecessary. But the response, like people in, you know, and there was interviews, they were saying that people were applauding from the audience because they were, I guess he was picking up on what they were putting down. Yeah. But, um, the, some Hispanic groups, including the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, criticized the of statement. Course. And, uh, he went on to say that the city's biggest economy opportunity and urged this, this was the city's biggest economic um, opportunity and urged new Orleans to get more comfortable working beside someone who did not look like them as everyone's help was needed. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about during a subsequent interview on Telemundo with Jose Diaz Ballard. Megan praised the great work of Hispanic workers that they did in New Orleans and said that the city would not have recovered without them. There's just, (laughs) I mean, you just did this. Why are we doing this? Why do you keep talking about this? Uh, Yeah. So he then. So there must be some. There must be some issue probably. that we are unaware of, where there's some feeling of of uh, other people taking our jobs. That's right. that, that sentiment. Right. Same you thing. Know? Yeah. So Terrible. then he gives that um, this speech, which I think is. I know that there are people who are offended. I think it's hilarious, but um, so he. Shortly after Katrina, you know, devastated New Orleans, there were calls for moratoriums on rebuilding certain neighborhoods. So. The not, lower ninth ward, like I said, is predominantly black. Yeah. Um, the folks that did evacuate those areas who could afford to, maybe they didn't have a car or whatever. Like There were people who couldn't get out and were of still course. there. But there were a lot of people who could get out, right? Um, when they finally made it back to the city, which could have been weeks or months later, right. their house, which was completely underwater. Yeah, it's destroyed. It's com- Yeah, it's destroyed and it's covered in mold. Of course. Right? It's all wet. Everything's yes. wet. Yeah, you got to um, knock it down and re- start over. Right. Well, the city was just knocking houses down and weren't, like they would send a letter to a random, like they, you know, you would come home and your house was fucking gone. And all your stuff? Everything. It's gone. Oh my and God. And so they, but you know, when you have, when bad developers have the opportunity to take advantage of a situation, right. Uh, they're looking at the lower ninth ward. They're like, eh, you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe oh, this is an opportunity. God. Right. So this is, this is just, just not good. Terrible. Because the, the thing about New Orleans that I love so much is that it's, it's the culture. It's the way of life. It's yeah. the people. It's generation after generation of folks that are there. It's the music, the food. It just, it's the way of thinking. It's a beautiful fucking city. And it is predominantly black. Thank God. Yeah. It influences the entire fucking spirit of that city, which yeah. makes it so beautiful. Fucking love that goddamn yes. city. Okay. So shortly after, okay. So two weeks after Katrina struck, struck, Nagin took a weekend trip to Dallas to reunite with his family. And when he was there, he, he was asked to meet with leading, because his family went to Dallas right. to evacuate. Um, he met with leading New Orleans businessmen to, to discuss the city's future. And he made it clear at that meeting that everyone had a right to return home. Yes. A claim that some of the businessmen later on said that he didn't say. 
um, like he was basically playing both sides. But many of the initial proposals to rebuild New so, Orleans. So they're trying to basically rebuild and say, like, you can't come back to where your house was? Yes. There's lots of people who lost their homes that this way. This is unacceptable. And we're talking about, oh, generational yes. home. A home where there was grandmothers, yes. you know, like this well, is. This is shocking. Okay. So many of the initial proposals to rebuild New Orleans focused on rebuilding areas with the highest likelihood of economic return. Many groups expressed oh concern that Everything this might. Everything is about money. Yeah. I can't stand it. Well, this is the thing. The door's open. They're all, oh all these God. bad guys are going to run through yes. it, right? And so many groups expressed concern that this might radically change the racial makeup of the city. This the lean, is such bullshit. I know. The land deemed most economically viable was mostly city land above sea level in which the most economically advantaged and white citizens resided. <laughs> the majority of New Orleans, especially black residents, lived in the outer edges of the city where land was most be- mostly below sea level and deemed less economically vi- viable. So we're not going to rebuild that area. Like, who oh gives a fuck? Oh, my God. Yeah. So Nagin disavowed such proposals and response to the residents' concerns. He used the phrase chocolate city to signal that New Orleans would remain a majority black city. So people were super offended by chocolate city. Yeah. I thought it was funny. I don't I mean, I'm not offended by that at all. Yeah, I get I, it. I mean, who gives a fuck? But like <laughs> people no, were so insane about that. Yeah, insane. I mean, I can see, I can see it. I, I don't know. I I think that he could have said it in a different way and just said, this is going to be, this is our culture. This mm-hmm. is the black community. We're going to maintain this and I'm going to fight to make sure that houses yes. are built and that you will be back in your homes, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Like he could have, well, he already shown yeah. us that he doesn't really, he can he just says whatever he feels like saying, yeah. you know? So he uses, it, it seems like it's just because it is this like, I, I don't know if it's being cutesy, but it's almost dismissive of like the seriousness of the situation. Oh, okay, I hear what you're you saying. You know what yes, I mean? Yes, now like, I hear it. Yes, 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 yes. Like, yes. like this is a, a grave situation. This isn't a yes. goof. Yeah. yeah. So he first used the phrase during a Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration in New uh-huh. Orleans on January 6, 2006. 16, 2006, and repeated the metaphor several times. So he probably got a great reaction from the crowd. One and then time. he just kept using it like a dad joke. Yeah. You know, he's like, did you hear this joke? This no, was seized no, upon... No. And parodied by some commentators, cartoons, and merchandising. Oh, no. Oh, Tina. Various designs of t-shirts with satirical depictions of Negan as Willy Wonka were sold in the city and on the internet. No. No. Get me that shirt right now. I mean, but they're making a farce of like this horrible thing that's happened. And I get it, but... Chocolate I'm against city. it. No, I'm against it. Do, 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 do. Da, 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 No, no. I'm too new. Orleans. No. Okay. No. Sorry. I'm against it. <laughs> I am against this. All right. Well, fuck it. I won't, <laughs> then I won't record that song. Thanks a lot. Yeah, sorry. So, Negan also said that New Orleans will, quote, will be a majority African-American city because that is what God wants it to be, end quote. Okay. Oh. Some people found the implication of Nagin claiming to know God's will to be troubling as the racial aspects oh. of his speech as well. <laughs> he just, someone, doesn't anyone, is anyone vetting? <laughs> no. Is anyone vetting? I, I just feel like, look, when you are a public official and you're giving a speech, <laughs> Somebody there's got to be notes. someone there that is vetting what you say. Let me just take a quick glance at it. I mean, I've watched that, what is that, that stupid show on uh, Netflix, The Queen or whatever oh, it yeah, is. yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time she wants to say something, they're looking and they're like, you can't say that. Where is that for this guy? Well, maybe, listen, well, let's get into it because you know that ego is big. Yeah. He, he's all he, over the fucking yeah. news. Everybody wants to talk to him, right? Yeah. And so no one's going to tell him what he can and can't say. I, as I'm going to assume that. Okay. Which I know nobody should, but whatever. Um, 
He then condemned Washington, D.C. by saying, God, quote, sent us hurricane after hurricane after hurricane, and it's destroyed and put stress on this country, suggesting God's disapproval of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. No. <laughs> Listen, Ooh, they have honey. a city to rebuild. <laughs> You're just you're like you're distracting. You're taking away from what needs to be done. Mm. Okay. Don't bring God into it. <laughs> um in 2006 he runs for re-election, right? For mayor. So, um but at this point at least two thirds of the residents are displaced. Like oh they're not goodness. even going to be able to vote in this election. <gasps> maybe if they got vote by mail ballots maybe, but yeah, but um, where I mean at that, I at can't that point even imagine. Years, yeah. So um, at the on election night, he was a front runner with 38%. And uh, Lieutenant Governor Gov- uh, Mitch Landro came in second with 29%. And then when they faced off in a re-election, Nagin defeated Landro 52 to 48%. So now he's re-elected. His second term begun- begins June 1st, 2006. And he was like out the gate already being criticized by local media. Um, for example, his, quote, 100-day plan to accelerate the rebuilding of New Orleans was bashed for what critics said critics said was a tardy release lack of details and activity in moving forward um nagan administration spokesperson rob kuhig uh backed away from a 100-day promise stating that it was not meant as a quote time period but as a short-range initiative to improve quality of life issues yeah i mean i I can't imagine the the planning development i mean just to to think about how are we rebuilding how long this is you know i I just uh, and I get a hundred days. Maybe they could have just yeah. said, in "Don't put it in the days, plan." In a hundred days, we hope to have started this, or we hope in this war to have X amount of yes. things done. Something yes. like that. Yeah, I hear you. That was you a little be, uh, realistic. Realistic, yes. Yeah. So delays in FEMA reimbursements and federal recovery dollars Ugh. reaching the city caused many significant delays. Yeah, that's not his fault. No. In 2006, Nagin was also criticized for devoting time to extensive lobbying in Washington, D.C. and a national speaking tour. Oh, come on. Honey, get back to work. Get back to work. Nagin's administration said that this was necessary in order to correct incorrect, in, I'm sorry, to correct inaccurate perceptions of New Orleans and secure recovery support. In addition, what? during 2007, a drastic increase in the city's violent crime rate led to more criticism of Nagin. He got a call from, um, Negan called for and got help from Louisiana's National Guard and a U.S. Justice Department. Wow. He was heavily criticized by the local paper for doing that. He reignited complaints about him when they were complaining about him when he said that news of two killings should, have, should keep focus on the city's needs for more help and, quote, while sad, keeps the New Orleans brand out there, end quote. The New Orleans brand? Right. Oh, my God. Of he what? just People getting killed? Yeah, no. He just isn't... His messaging is it's not it's bad. He, yeah, he he has an issue in however he's trying to convey things is not it, it's just coming out wrong. Yeah. So Nagin hired recovery expert Dr. Ed Blakely in 2007 to head up a dedicated office of recovery recovery management. The Rockefeller, Ford, and Bill and Melinda Gates foundations provided grants for critical staff enhancements. Um, during the end of 2007 and into 2008, Nagin guided the city through an extensive planning process that documented a 14 billion dollar need. Wow. rebuild the city and but this is years later like this yeah why weren't they that immediately was, that was two and three years later yeah that uh, the first thing should be what is the cost how are we doing how are we bidding what mm. but you know how slow this all moves i know that's the problem with i know bureaucracy yeah. man 
So, however, the state was so the state was al- only allocated two percent of that plan, and it took almost three years to receive any of the federal recovery oh my dollars. God. That's unacceptable. Yeah, the federal government, like, come on, honey. So people by, need a house to live in. Yes. Um. So for by years four and five after the hurricane, eighty-five percent of all city managed recovery projects were either recently completed, under construction, or in final design. Final design. Final is design like, is that's not like even ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by the end of 2009, they were there were over $20 billion in public and private sector construction-related projects underway. Business Week said New Orleans was one of the best cities in America to write out the Great Recession, which is not funny when yeah. you're talking about they had to go through a devastating yeah. motherfucking storm to get anything pumped, like anybody to pay attention yeah. to the fucking city. Money I mean, Magazine. That, that's terrible. I know. Money Magazine ranked the city as the sixth fastest growing real estate market. Wow. Um, Outside Magazine said uh, New Orleans was the 20th best town in America to live in. The United States Department of Labor in its t- April 2010 report said New Orleans had the lowest unemployment in the nation. That's good. Everyone's working to yeah, rebuild that building. city. Right. Yeah. So let's get into the scandal, scandal, scandal. Oh, my God. Here we are finally, yeah? Yes. So I always say the bigger their mouth, the harder they're going to fall, bitch. Yes. Because... <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens with this guy. Oh, and no. I remember when all this started coming out, I was like, God damn it. Can't we have one guy? You know, when you think about 9-11, yeah. this is what it's also brought to my mind. It's like when you think about 9-11, Rudy Giuliani, believe yeah. it or not, kids out there who now only know the vampire yes. troll as Rudy Ugh. Giuliani. He was once America's mayor, right? Oh like God, everybody, everybody rallied around that yeah. fucking guy because he was like building up this city after 9-11. And oh, he's good. You know, he's out there. He's passionate. Like everybody's I mean, like, yeah, he did. Rudy. I mean, there were some things that he did. Before that, yes, 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 yes. not good. Yes, but but, but after that, but, I mean, people were all excited. Well, same thing with this. Like this guy was like revered. Oh, he's yeah. so passionate about his city, and you know, Democrats didn't like George W. Bush anyway. So you got somebody out there talking shit about him. They're like, yeah, yeah right. Like right. they love they love this fucking guy. Well, uh oh. So April seventh, two thousand nine, the Times Picayune alleged, a, which is a newspaper, alleged a conflict of interest with regard to a trip Nagan took into Hawaii in two thousand four. Oh no, the vacation. That Nagan then took with his chief technology officer, Greg Meffert, and their families was claimed to be partially paid by Meffert. But years later, it was revealed that Meffert used a contractor's credit card to pay for Nagan's plane ticket. Must be nice. <sighs> we got all that money coming in, honey. Uh, David Hammer of the Times Picayune reported on April 23rd, 2009, that Nagan had taken, quote, plenty of other trips at the expense expense of net methods which is a company owned by a city vendor mark st pierre oh no the times picayune had obtained information that mark st pierre who allegedly paid for the holiday had made substantial donations to nagan's 2006 re-election mm. campaign meffert was later charged with 63 felony counts <gasps> in what authority said quote was a lucrative kickback scheme <gasps> Um, all but two of the counts were subsequently dropped and Mefford eventually pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and one count of filing a false income tax return. I think they flipped him against Mm. Nagan. They had to. Yeah. No way. 20 counts. Give me a break. Or what did I say? 63? Yeah. Um, in April, 2010, as a result of a freedom of information act request from a New Orleans news station, Nagan was investigated for destroying his official city emails. But they can find that stuff on the server, yeah. yo. Oh. So after a forensic investigation by a computer forensics firm, 5,400 <gasps> emails were recovered. 
get those emails. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love when I say <laughs> things like this to you because your eyes light up. You love that I fucking lo- sneaky bit I shit. Do, yeah, I do. I do. It. It's my favorite. Uh, many of these emails. I love the forensic. I yes. love forensic accounting and I yes. love this forensic, like, let me dig into yes. the electronics and they pick up like little shreds. Jackpot. <laughs> you know, yeah. like a shred of an email here. Yes. It's, it's amazing yes. to me. So um, many of these emails were subsequently used as evidence in Megan's 2013 mm. criminal trial. So in June 2012, Frank Fidella, who was facing major security and fraud charges, pleaded guilty in New Orleans federal court to one count of conspiracy to bribe a public official. According to the Times-Picayune, Fidelli claims to have paid $50,000 and delivered truckloads of free granite to Nagin's son's business in exchange for favorable treatment for Fidelli's companies with city contracts. Mm. So even his kid is fucking benefiting from this shit. So on January 18th, 2013, Nagin was indicted on 21 corruption charges, including wow. wire fraud, conspiracy, bribery, money laundering, and filing false tax Ooh. returns related, related to bribes from city contractors. The 21 count federal corruption charges were issued by a grand jury. On February 20th, 2013, Nagin pleaded, Nagin pleaded not guilty in federal court to all charges. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke, right? I mean, yeah, come on. I mean... Despite New Orleans' long history of political corruption, love, <laughs> Nagin was the first mayor to be criminally charged for wow. corruption in office. Wow. Yeah. Slippery down there. Yes. Just like the uh, crawdaddies, if you will. Yes. <laughs> New Orleans joke. Um, Nagin New was. Orleans. New Orleans. So Nagin was convicted on 20 of the 21 counts by a jury on uh, February 12th, 2014. And these charges included that he had taken. More, Included that he had taken more than, are you ready? Oh, gosh. $500,000 in payouts from businessmen in exchange for millions of dollars worth of city contracts. This is such garbage. So he, you know, these people are suffering. Yes. And he's thinking about how can I make this lucrative for me? That's yep. awful. Yep. That that's even worse. Yeah. People, that's not just like, oh, I mean, oh, we're gonna we're building a you know something on this on the on the riverfront and I'm gonna give it to my buddy. This is people's lives and their homes. Yes. That could not cause to delays mention, and jack up the cost of stuff. Yes. That's so horrible. The truckloads and truckloads of refrigerated you know, they had those all those refrigerated trucks, like yeah. semi trucks that had bodies in it that nobody could claim. Like oh people were just God. there was thousands of people dead. This guy's over here going, how can I fucking make money yeah. off of this shit? No. Ooh, bitch. It's terrible. So on July 9th, 2014, Nagin was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment and more than $585,000 in restitution and wow. forfeiture. The judge then recommended that Nagin be sent to the Federal Correctional Complex in Oakdale, Louisiana. On July 15th, 2014, Nagin's attorney filed an appeal with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That was fucking denied. Um, on September 3rd, 2014, a judge deemed Nagin indigent and ordered the federal public defender's office to take over his appeal. He basically said he was penniless and relying now on food stamps, that so he had no money. His wife declared bankruptcy. So where's all the money? Mm-hmm. Mm. Reminds me of Kwame Kilpatrick, yeah. who's walking free right now. Yes. Um, <laughs> <reminds> <laughs> um, so um, on September 8th, 2014, he you know goes into jail, goes into prison, and um, the terms of his sentencing included a possible release date of no earlier than May 25th, 2023. However, oh, no. in response to COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic spreading in the prisons, authorities released Snag into house arrest on April 27th, 2020. So he's now living in Dallas with his family and he still maintains his innocence. Oh, sure. Yeah. And there's wow. $500,000 money that Just nobody will ever get. No one will ever get. Nope. Oh, that's somewhere. That's under the mattresses. Oh, it has to be. Come on. 
So that's the story mm. of Ray Nagin. Wow. Yeah. That's a good story. So I would recommend if any of you have HBO to watch the show Treme because it talks it's oh. it takes place in New Orleans and it's by the same uh, beautiful angel who made The Wire, David Simon. And he moved down to New Orleans after the hurricane and with his like producing partner and they made the show Treme and it's it's like three seasons. I need to check it out. I it's haven't seen it. Absolutely amazing. The music is fantastic. Treme is this beautiful like historical historic neighborhood. Um, in New Orleans and the music is just fantastic and the storylines are great but it's all about these folks struggling after the storm mm. and it, it talks about abuse of power and money and corruption and these contractors that come in and it's just a really really oh, great show so I'll have to check it out for sure yes girl are you ready oh let's go all right today I'm going to tell you the story of Leon Jordan of Kansas City Missouri okay Civil rights activist Leon Jordan was elected to the Missouri House in 1964 and became one of the most powerful black politicians in Kansas City. But in the early morning hours of July 15th, everything changes. Oh my gosh. So our story takes place in Kansas City, Missouri. And I don't, you know, I don't know much about Kansas City. I just looked up a fun fact and I learned that the ice cream cone was invented at the Missouri State Fair. So I'm moving to that fucking yes, place that's now. where we're Thank going. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. So um, before I go into details about uh, the tragic thing that happened to oh, Leon God. Jordan, oh. I want to give you a little bit of background. So first off, after delving into this story, I realized that there are so many incredible folks like Leon Jordan mm. who we should be learning about. Yeah. And again, not just d during Black History Month, like, you know, uh, we, we hear so many people say like Black History is American history, which is just to be yes. weaved into it all of the time, all yes. year long. Yes. And we need to do more. And especially when I read, I, I had never heard of Leon Jordan and almost every account that I read about him said that he was the most powerful black politician in that state. Wow. And like civil rights activist and did all of this amazing stuff. And I'm like, why don't I know about this guy? Yeah. Like, why didn't we learn about mm. this in history? So here we go. Leon Jordan grew up in Kansas city, Missouri and Swift notes for an article in black then that Jordan did a ton of stuff. So for example, he was a soldier a pilot, mm. a detective, an educator, an activist, and a politician. Jesus. What? I was like, this guy is amazing. I feel like most people, like you maybe have one or two successes in yeah. your life, and he did like all of this stuff. Yes, detective, the end. Yeah. That's all I need to do. Yes. Thank you. So um, I'm kind of going to go through a little bit of his, you know, um, kind of highlights of his career. So as a soldier, he served in the U.S. Army. But there wasn't much about his time there. And uh, Farnsworth notes in a biography on Leon Jordan that he also joined the reserves after graduating college. Um, as an educator, uh, according to the African-American Registry, after graduating from Wilberforce University in 1933, Jordan became an educator. And according to Farnsworth's biography on Jordan, he did this during his first year back. And he also noted that Jordan also worked for his brother in an advertising department. So he was kind of had finished school. He did a little bit of time in law school, goes back to Kansas City and is kind of trying to find his way. And he ends up doing a little bit of time as an educator, working for his brother and just kind of hmm. not sure, you know, how it is yeah, when yeah. you're young and out of college. Yeah. And then in 1936, uh, and in some other accounts say 1938, Jordan entered the police force. And according to the African-American registry st site, 
Jordan was the first black man to earn the rank of lieutenant. Mm. And this part I thought was so interesting that in the middle of his career on the force in 1947, Jordan was recruited by the Liberian government to reorganize their 450 man police force. So he leaves America, goes to Liberia. He spends eight years doing that. Whoa. And like, you know, he does all of this amazing stuff there and has control of 450 men. Wow. Does all this reorganizing for them. And then he returns back to Kansas City. But the thing that sucks because America, yeah. Jim Crow, God, and all this uh, bullshit at yes. the time, he comes back and he tries to uh, work on the force again. And they gave him that lieutenant position. But they give him 12 cops to manage and like these crappy hours and it's limited. So segregated and all of that. And as compared to the ranking that he had when he was in this other country, it was too much for him. And it was demeaning. Like he he was like, you know, I, I was doing this whole yes. thing. I was in charge of all of these yes. people. And, and, and now I come back to the States and there's no respect for what I can offer this yes. force. It's, it's, it reminds me of James Baldwin when James Baldwin was, grew up here, was a writer. Like yeah. he left to go to Paris and was like living a free life. Yes. There was nothing like, and he'd come back here and go, Oh, here we go here again. We go. I'm just another like N word he would say, but yeah. like, uh, you know, like the, here we go. This is how I get treated when I come back to this country. Yeah. It's terrible. It's awful. So uh, according to a People Pill biography of Jordan, he flew his own plane. So he was a pilot. I'm not sure when he became a pilot. I don't know if that's something he learned when he was in Liberia or mm -hmm. when he served in the army. At that part, I don't know. But um, the article did note this amazing feat. So in 1948, when he was in Liberia, the French High Commissioner of West Africa, along with 16 other French officials, crash landed and Jordan helped in the rescue efforts, and the Liberian president, William Tubman, awarded him the Chevrolet of Star of Africa Award. Wow. Isn't that amazing? He's amazing. He's amazing. He's amazing. Like, he's like this rescue, he goes on a oh rescue mission, he does all of this, and again, he comes back, and it's just garbage here. Mm. So, in 1954, Jordan comes back to Kansas City, and this is where he begins his work as an activist and politician. And he also opened up a bar called the Green Duck Tavern. Mm. So I want to mention the tavern because according to the African-American Heritage Trail, this place was where many political conversations were held. Mm. And I love this. Like, yes. like they go and they're like, they are making plans. Ugh. And they cite Michael Kubik of the Green Duck Project as stating, quote, the tavern became a place for robust discussion, where strong disagreements about politics and civil rights could be hashed out without fear. At a time when access to white-owned facilities was mm. limited and civil rights activists were routinely harassed by police and the public, having a safe place to discuss these issues and reach consensus was essential. Wow. So I love Me this. too. I Listen. Love it. I love it too that there's a safe place for them to have those discussions yes. and talk about it and it. I, and I had, and I'm getting flashes of like how much I loved that we all could hang out and do those things. Oh like, my God. I miss going Ugh. to bars and like talking, talking and having a drink and like just planning and planning. Yeah. I mean, I know. Damn it. Vaccines. Let's go. Yeah. All right. So he was first elected to Kansas city's fort, uh, 14th ward board as a committee person in 1958. And he starts a foundation with his friend, Bruce Watkins called freedom Inc mm -hmm. in 1962. And Freedom Inc. was like this club designed to help black candidates get elected, oh. stop voter suppression, yes. uh, give black voters more influence in the area. I'm like, oh, my, oh God. my God. Love this. And according to the African-American Registry, 
1963, they conducted the largest voter registration drives to ever happen in Kansas City. Jesus. And also, according to PeoplePill, they also got an ordinance passed desegregating all public facilities. Oh, my God. I, I was like, I'm reading this. I'm like, this guy's so amazing. Like, why don't more people, I mean, maybe more people know, and I'm just an idiot. But no. again, I don't remember learning about him in maybe. school. Maybe. I mean, I, I would hope, and I don't know if it's true, because I just saw an article yesterday that in Utah, parents can opt their kids out of learning about black history in Utah schools. You know, I was just, I was just watching L Sharpton on, I forget what channel. And he was talking about civics. Mm-hmm. And you and I have talked about this where I'm yes. like, they need, there needs to be engagement yes. from like elementary, middle, high oh school level. God, and that local, local government should really be involved in the local schools and all yes. of this. So, yes. but he talked about uh, the issue of bringing civics back he talks about he talked about when the shift happened and started moving towards stem Mm. and and things like that and then they took things out of sort of like social science and history right and he also talked about how depending on where you live textbook companies publish different books about the same historical events yes some of them (laughs) remove Mm-hmm. issues of black history yes and others include it yes and i think that you know and i get like that the states need to be independent and and have this sort of autonomy but at the same time if we are the united states there needs to be sort of some federal regulation mm-hmm. where a certain state like you could talk can can't just say we're going to erase black history right that that's not allowed i mean this is it's it's funny <laughs> it's not allowed my te- my sister is a teacher and she's taught in florida and she's taught in uh another state, I don't want to say which state, but let me just say it's the South. And she specifically has said to me that the way she's taught elementary now, she teaches middle, but the way in, in, in elementary, like social studies in Florida, the way they talk about Andrew Jackson is completely different in the state that she lives now. Yeah. And so that's exactly what you're saying. Like, and I think it depends on the parts of parts of Florida as well. Yeah. So this was South Florida. Yeah. So it was a lot different than what yeah. she was teaching, but so what I'm, what my point was though, is that in Kansas City and in, in Missouri, maybe they do, maybe, maybe they are they talking do. about this person because it's do. in a state that we don't, we don't, that we, we don't grow up in. So but maybe, still, like I feel like these are huge accomplishments. Girl, please. The other thing is, uh, wait, free- and, before you even finish that, okay. it also goes to show that it, it, it's work. It's organizing yes. to get change made, yes. but you only need a, one person and to gather other people around and be like, this is something this is we what can go do doing. right now. This we're is all we have to it. do to do that. And it just, it should encourage other people. To I, I went it. to the, my commission to stop gun shows in, yeah. in public facilities in, in the city that I live. And it happened. Like yeah. all you need is a little bit of like, Hey, let's gather together and see if this is something and we can see stop we from can happening. Anybody can do it. Yes. Anybody can let's do it. So go. yeah, come on. So Freedom Inc also put up eight black candidates in 1964 for various seats and seven of them won. Damn, man! Including Jordan for his first term as a Missouri House rep. Yes! First of three terms. And I love this so much. Like this, I was like, I love this. Everything made me so happy about this. Oh my God. And in fact, Kansas City Star reporter Glenn Rice told KBAI's Matt Horn that, quote, had it not been for Leon Jordan, you wouldn't have public accommodations, equal access, and so forth to what you may have today. Dang. Leon Jordan laid the foundation for a lot of things we have today. That's amazing. Amazing. Like, it gave me goosebumps. Yes. Like, I was just loving this. So, let me get to the major oh, incident. Oh, God, your eyes. I know, I'm sorry. Fucked. Here we go. So, on July 15th, 1970, at around 1 a.m., 
Jordan was leaving the Green Duck Tavern mm. and was shot three times <gasps> with a Remington 12-gauge Wingmaster shotgun. And this happened three weeks before the Democratic primary, and Jordan was running for re-election for a fourth term in the House. So The fuck? I know. So according to Farnsworth uh, biography, and I have, so this is like a full book <laughs> that is online. You can like download the PDF that goes into such amazing detail about his early life, his childhood, like everything, mm -hmm. his time in Liberia. Um, so I, I have it linked because I, I uh, got a lot of information from there. But according to that biography, Jordan left the bar after locking up and allegedly he always had a pistol with him. Uh, he always carried a pistol Fine. with him. And he put the pistol in his pocket mm. as he was going to go open the door to his car. So what people think is that it was believed that, that he was watched, that they followed his routine mm. so that they knew he was going to put, put that, that gun there. And yeah. that's right when they shoot him. Motherfuckers. So they knew like his habits, you know? So here we go. Um, the charges. According to an excerpt from David Conrad's biography on Jordan, two people were brought up on charges but nothing happened. According to the Jordan biography, two 14-year-olds claimed to have witnessed the murder, but that turns out to be false. But they still identified two men in a police lineup, a Carlton Edward Miller and a Reginald M. Watson. But once they start questioning the boys and gave them lie detector tests and all of this, their story starts to crumble and they realize, like, maybe they had ridden by, like, on the day of the crime scene, but they didn't, you know, there were kids and they just kind of told this story. Come on. So one of the boys even ran away because they had put the boys in protective custody and all of this stuff. Oh. And one ran away. And so once that happened, like they had to drop the charges because they Fuck. didn't have anything. But do we know anything about these guys? So no, but I'm going to. Okay. It, it gets interesting. Oh. So later, a former colleague and friend of Jordan's from the police force, a Sergeant Lloyd de Graffenried, uh, had this to say about the case. Quote, this is the most complex murder case I have ever worked on. In 23 years with the police department, I can't remember a case with less information, more blind alleys, more possible motives, and more suspects. It's totally baffling. Jesus. And he lists these as possible motives. He says it could have been for political reasons, business, personal animosity, jealousy, or criminal activity. Okay. So first it's all, like take the range yeah, of First of all, like, take jealousy out, you dummy. That's not a know, fucking thing. Uh, so I, it's totally politically motivated. It's some fucking white supremacist asshole. Well, let's see. Oh, God. So in 1972, a jailhouse informant stated that he knew details and would tell in exchange for a reduced sentence. So a lot of times whenever informants kind of give information, it's tricky because if they're doing it to get a reduced sentence, like, can you really trust what's right. being said? Because they want something out of it. Right. And if an informant gives information, they're like, I don't want anything, then that tends to be more trustworthy because they're just like, hey, I need to say yeah. this thing. Yeah, yeah. But this guy wanted a reduced sentence. And he claimed that James Willis, Maynard Cooper, and Doc Dearborn were involved in the murder. And the biography further notes that Willis was brought to trial and found not guilty. So they have these three guys. They bring one of them to trial, gets a not guilty verdict. So they don't pursue the other two because they're like, well, we didn't have enough to get this guy. Cause that happens too with a prosecutor. Like, can we win this case? Do we have enough evidence? So just try. Why can't you just try I though? Know. So it seems that these men may have been involved in part of what was known as the black mafia, which I'm going to talk about in a bit. Ultimately 
No one was prosecuted oh for God. the murder. This is fucking unbelievable. All right. So some of the aftermath. The day after his killing, the Kansas City Call had Jordan's death on the front page and listed his death as an enormous loss to the community. And then also like went on to talk about oh. all of his accomplishments. And Franz Wurst's biography highlights some of what was said. Quote, Leon Jordan is dead, the victim of an assassin's bullet, but the legacy that he leaves will keep his memory green. Senator Thomas Eagleton had this to say, quote, in just a few years as the guiding hand of Freedom Inc., he molded the black community of Kansas City into the kind of powerful political force for the accomplishment of black objectives it always should have been, but never was before. Wow. Wow. That's uh, what an amazing it's quote. It's terrible. So... And then the case kind of goes cold. <sighs> the tavern continued to be an important political spot in uh, in Kansas City. Uh, and Jordan's wife, or- uh, Orchid. Oh, I love that name. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. But this made me really happy. She ran for his seat. <gasps> she won. Yes. And she continued to serve for 16 years. Yes, bitch. I know. Get it. Motherfuck yes. Oh, I was like, oh, and she's so, so lovely. Oh. All right. So some points of interest. Now, in 2010, and later, this article was updated in 2014, Mike McGraw and Glenn Rice of the Kansas Star reported that new evidence came out suggesting that Leon Jordan's assassination may have been a mob hit. So a police report noted that the murder... So Kansas City's a big mob town, though. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. So Kansas City, um, they, they said the police report noted that the murder weapon, that shotgun, could have been part of like this sort of collection of weapons that was sold by the North End Italian Fence mm-hmm. back in 1966. Okay. So there were all these guns that were being sold, and that gun was part of that okay. fencing operation. Okay. The article also notes that the killing had all the markings of a mob hit, right? It, there was a stolen gun. The gun was dumped in a dumpster right away. Like, you know, it just was, like, very calculated. Yeah. You know, it didn't seem like a personal thing. It was like this was planned. Right. Another article from Mike McGraw from the Kansas City Star uh, po- uh, posted on McClatchy noted that they found the gun. Now, this was interesting. So they found the gun in that um, dumpster, and then it went missing for several years. What? Right? And it was then used by a cop, like, somewhere else, because then it was, like, sort of, like, part of, like, the cop's Another- weapons, and wow. they found it in a police patrol car, like, years later. Wow. Yes. And there was still like partial fingerprints on it. What? Like it just was Jesus. crazy. So I was like, what 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 is going on? It just was very weird. So the and cop then, must have so some cop must have taken it out of evidence, right? Yeah. But wow. what? But why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So an informant, Shotgun Joe, may huh. have contracted the killers and given them the weapon. And the article posits that this may have been part of a well thought out plan but it's sort of like why why is this happening according to the article jordan sort of had what they noted as quote a bare knuckled type of approach to politics Mm -hmm. and that may have angered some people and they further note that back then the mob ran like this one area river quay entertainment district and that jordan had upset the north end politicians who were connected to the mob Okay. They may not have been in the mob, but they had relations with the mob. And so there might have been some animosity there. All right. They also reported that Orchid, Jordan's wife, she believed that it was politically motivated. And she basically, she thought it was because of his work with Freedom Inc. And she explained that he wouldn't change his mind regarding endorsements, mm. even when offered money, 
And she noted that some of those North End politicians mm. were not happy with Freedom Inc.'s ballot recommendations that year. I mean, come on. I though. know, I but mean, who knows? Yeah, but how, how who many knows? people actually take those fucking things and use I, them? Well, who knows? But if, 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 if he's a strong force in the black community, then that that's he's wielding a lot of power there I, I, so this is very upsetting i, I mean over this fucking endorsement bullshit are you fucking well, kidding me this other thing happened oh which god help me i love there's so jordan. many twists in this fucking i story. love jordan even more for oh. this. so at one time jordan punched one of those north end politicians oh. in the face at the state capitol Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, I love it. So f- that's kind of embarrassing. So a Frank, right? a Frank Mazuka allegedly had done things to embarrass black members of the police force. So there was some incident and Jordan was upset because he, at Mazuka, because Mazuka kind of asked these officers on the spot and it put them in a predicament because if they would have answered truthfully, they would get in trouble by sort of like the white cops that are over them. Mm. And if they didn't answer truthfully, the black community is going to rail against them. So like, he's Eric, like, yeah. why would you put them on the spot in the mm. public? And he was mad and he punches this guy in the face. Wow. And like, yes. Yeah. So he wasn't having it. But the article notes that while Mazuka wasn't a mobster, he may have been connected. Mm. And they spoke to someone who indicated that Jordan allegedly knew that what he had done put him in danger with the mob, knowing like because he punched this guy, like hey, they they might come after me to kill me. Like he knew that he had. Oh my god! That, you know that's got to that, be it then. Um, but Mazuka talked the mob out of killing him allegedly, and just wanted an apology from Jordan. And Jordan kind of goes to his office and gives this apology. Oh god! But some people say, you know, was that apology enough? Because it's about a year and a half after this that that Jordan is killed. The article also notes that some former mob folks corroborate that story, that it was a mob hit, and that it may have been because they wanted to curry favor and getting good with those higher up. So if they know like, oh, they don't like this guy, Jordan. Oh, if we take Jordan out, then they're going to like look at us as like, look at how tough we are. We have done this thing for them. And like, who knows? There's a, uh, I have those articles linked where it kind of, it really details like all of like the, the mob connections Meanwhile, and stories. this person is now gone. You know, I mean, the I person know. they killed is just, it's, inc- it's terrible. What the fucking, what we've lost now because of this. Yeah. It's, what else could he could have done? Oh my God. Who knows? Dang. And the other thing that they said is that the, the Italian mob mm-hmm. may have contacted did the black mafia because they were doing business together. Okay. So they were like, Hey, you guys go kill this guy. And they, wow. they may have been a deal there. But again, this is just a theory. Yeah. And a lot of the folks that are potentially involved are now dead. Mm. Right. And so know that three guys that were mentioned were part of that black mafia. And so there may have been a connection who knows. All right. So another point of interest is that the green duck tavern was open until 2015 oh, when wow. the next owner, Jimmy Townsend, was murdered. What the hell? I know. And it's listed as a historic building, though. And according to a Vox article, in 2018, a play called The Green Duck Lounge premiered in Kansas City that covers mm. the life both of Jordan and Townsend and draws parallels to today's BLM movement. So I thought wow. that was really cool. Yes. And then in 1972, Kansas City broke ground on the Leon M. Jordan Memorial Park. Aww. And in 1975, they created a bronze statue in his honor. And according to an article on a Dubois consulting the statue may have been the first ever elected in missouri history to honor a black leader and the first ever to be created by a black artist oh my god and in 2018 they broke ground at the park to make a monument 
So now they have this monument and there are slots for like a thousand honorees and each year they're going to add plaques <gasps> to it so oh, so people can like yes, nominate people yes, in the community yes. to have their name on the plaque. Oh, I love so this. I was like, that's a pretty awesome legacy yes. to kind of end with. So that's <sighs> the story of the assassination of civil rights leader, politician, and activist Leon Jordan. Oh, Tina, <gasps> bless your soul. That was amazing. <sighs> God damn. I just... I, I, incredible guy, incredible, it's, incredible guy. Is, he's absolutely, well, you know, a lot, we always point to Martin Luther King Jr., but yeah. you know, he was in the South doing all of this. Yeah. There were people all over the country. All over the country doing stuff. Yes. And it just, it, it may, I mean, there's so much stuff that I've left out. So oh again, gosh. if you want to know more, please go to the sources. Cause there's so, like, and that biography was really great. Oh my gosh. She sounds yeah. amazing. I, I just, it, it, it just is, it sucks. Yeah. It sucks. It does. But, you know, again, like someone I, I haven't heard about that, you know, and then I think, God, in all of the cities everywhere, like, yes, I, I, it's like, I want to know more. Well, it reminds <laughs> yeah. me of our, our friend, Emmanuel George. Yes, I was thinking the whole yes. time. I'm like, God, if they can in every state, like do these amazing the cards, legacy cards. Which our audience has not heard about yet because yes. that, that little muck hasn't come out, but yes. you can right now go contact Emmanuel George on Facebook. It's, he has an organization called Black Broward and he's an artist and he makes these legends of Broward cards, which I bought five packs the day that we interviewed him. Wow. Yeah. And I kept one. I kept one to give to our good friend, uh, uh, Sarah Leonardi, yes. who's a school board member here in Broward. She's so been she highlighting can, them. Yeah. Well, she got one before I, I oh. posted that I got these and now I'm seeing them everywhere, which yes. is amazing. No, it's but I so also amazing. Dropped, um, I contacted somebody at the middle school where my daughter goes and I was like, Hey, I have these fucking, <laughs> I don't want to try not to say the oh, yeah. it's okay. I have these cards and this is what they are. And this is the local artist. He's an archivist and he's making these cards. He's an artist. Uh, incredible. And it's incredible. And they're like, yeah, we'll take them. Um, and so my daughter dropped them off at the office. And then I got an email back from her saying that the eighth grade history teacher is already <gasps> incorporating them in oh, their, Broward, or their Black History Month projects. I love this. It's amazing. So it highlights black history people who've made a difference in Broward County in black history. And it's just uh, I would love to see. Amazing. I would love to see. Uh, Emmanuel George to like major cities across America. P.S. When you said people they should put in there, I was thinking in that pl in that thing in Kansas City. Yeah. Although it's here, yeah. he's here. <laughs> He'd be somebody that they could yes. put in that in that, yes. in that in that plaque. That, that's uh, incredible. Yeah, he's he's absolutely. I, I contacted a couple of um, people regarding his cards as well to try to get yes. it uh, in some schools. I've so, seen a ton of people buying them now. Yeah. So I'm really, really happy for I'm him. I'm hoping that it, 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 it works out. Yes. Oh, I love it. Yes. Um, so happy Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Who gives a fuck? I, I got to tell you, I, I have to tell care. you. I, have, I, I didn't even, I don't even, I, I have such, I have such little interest in football. <laughs> no, I can't. And number one, I really think, I'm going to make people mad. Oh, who cares? Please don't, don't take this out of the podcast. But yeah. I really don't think that um, we should be glorifying. No. You know, until a lot of more changes happen yeah. uh, with, with our football program and, yeah. you know, the concussions, um, you know, it, it's, like, it's like a machine, you mm. know, like they, they pull kids out of college. They, mm. they, I, I don't know. I, I, well, they're they're not but these players are not protected their health their mental health is not protected with all of the level concussions that they receive and i know they're trying to change that but i, I don't know i i don't like it i don't like the whole system it's uh it, it's scary to me for some reason the physicality of it yeah. all the brutal the brutalness of it 
Um, but our good friend Kate, who's on our, our year-end special, she put a story. <laughs> she wrote in her story just three words. Football is stupid. Yes. And I was like, this bitch it's knows so, me. It's so stupid. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. Although, so a tradition in my house is, um, which is not happening this year because bitch needs to stop eating like this, is we would go to the grocery store and get like every thing you could find at like a bar like oh like snack tray yeah. and then we would make that on super bowl sunday so we would have like pizza rolls and nacho dip and you know like, like pigs in a blanket and we'd make all this good food and watch the only football game we watch all year which is super bowl oh. that's what we would do oh and we don't even know we'd be like i go i'm rooting for the blue team like yeah. i have no fucking idea who these when people I, are so so you know i grew up in pittsburgh so steelers are oh, yeah, like yeah. a big thing yeah and um you know there was a time where it was like because that's all my family did was watch like the steelers on mm-hmm. the on the tv and like that was you know uh, yeah. a thing and now and i did used to i used to totally crush on mm. jerome bettis do you remember him no <gasps> hold on hold on let me go the bus Oh wait, that Jerome Bettis, the bus people help me out. You know he's adorable. Oh, he's so cute. He wait a minute, so, I don't know this face. So cute, and oh my god, I he, yeah, no, he's ador- he, he's adorable. Oh, he is adorable. Look so, at that cute face. I, I and my husband because around the time we first got married, I would always go, oh Jerome Bettis, <laughs> and he's like, oh, do you just want to sit on a cloud with Jerome Bettis and float away? Yes, I do. <laughs> that sounds nice he's so cute yeah so he's the like he's you know the only thing i I liked about football back in the day was jerome bettis so um well we're cursed because we live in south florida so like the dolphins Uh. are like the team and i always i have so many friends that are miami dolphins fans god bless you all um but my brother even has like season tickets i think he gave them up this year but um it's so painful because my mother also it's is so like super boring. into it. I feel like football's it's, so boring. It is. To me, it and is. And baseball's boring too. Sorry, people. Yeah, basketball's the best to watch. Basketball, my, hockey, oh, love, soccer. Oh, hockey. I mean, anything. You got to move. Yeah, yeah, Have yeah. Some I'm here for action. hockey games. I'm here for hockey fights too. Yes. Oh, punch each other. Yes. Ooh, hey. Wrestle on the ground. <laughs> um, but anyway, my mother's so optimistic at the beginning of every season. Did you? And I go, Mom, don't ever talk to me about football. You have a son. Go call his ass. Like, yes. I don't know what you're talking about. But she's so optimistic. By mid-season, towards the end of the season, she's like, well, they win. One, they might be in the play. I go, okay. Every yeah. time she's disappointed. I mean, th- over 30 years now. I just it's enough. have no energy or care. Yeah, no. I have no energy or care either. Like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to... Um, be about it. Okay, so anyway, that's it. Football is stupid. Football oh my is God. stupid. Thank you. That's the, I'm writing that's this the down. Title. I had something else down, but um, <laughs> football is stupid. Thanks, Kate. Bye. Bye. If you want to see any photos or take a deeper dive into our stories, please follow the episode notes on our website, themuckpodcast.fireside.fm, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support the Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level. Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for the Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty.